As you can see, John, our oldest there, um, he's uh, now taller than Ruth. He's taller than me. Uh, and Sam and Lois and then Frida and Ruby. And so we, uh, they, they do say hey. And actually, we, we, they recorded a little hello before they walked out to church. Of families at church at our church and Christ Community Bible Church and here in Dallas, Texas. Um, but so they're there now. But they just wanted to record a little video just to say hey. Uh, so I'm going to play that now too. So yeah, you can turn up the volume as well again, <laughs> but here we go. This is right before they left for church. Thank you, Bluish Falls Church. All right, this is everybody. They're going to church. So I just want to say, Hey, uh, this is Ruby, Rita, Lois, Sam, John, Ruth, Adam. Anyways, we love you. Love you guys. Yeah. All right, so you get a little bit of an idea of the energy in our house, which is, which is always a lot. Um, and as the kids said, uh, we do want to say thank you, guys. Um, this is actually our first village where we lived in CAR, just on that uh, hill in the background. That's that's where we live, Bebrati. Um, we just want to say thank you for all that you guys have done for so many years. Uh, <laughs> um, that you guys have been so gracious to us and helping. I was laughing because I was remembering going 45 minutes over. I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. But uh, so thankful you guys have been gracious to us and, and have supported us and prayed for us and been so gracious to us for so many years. And we do want to say thank you. Um, uh, the older we get, we're so thankful for people who have been so gracious to us for so many years. And of course, that reminds us of God's graciousness, which is you know, from before time began even. Um, and so uh, thank you for that. Um, just real quick, uh, Central African Republic, I have two pictures here. One on the left is our dear friends. This is Lois's third birthday party. Uh, and uh, this is all her friends and family um, that live there. And so a very gracious, wonderful view of, of the relationships and warmth of, of people there. And on the right, you see uh, some of the challenges of, of the uh, country, uh, second least developed nation in the world. A lot of cycles of, of, of uh, coups and government overthrows and violence. And uh, so just a lot of challenges there and a lot of difficulties that our brothers and sisters there have to face and everyone has to face there. Uh, 72 different languages, um, four New Testaments, one Bible, six more New Testaments soon. Uh, three of the teams that I'm working with are, are working on finishing up their New Testaments and eight plus new projects. And this is not counting a lot of these teams that finish their New Testaments going on to do Old Testament and full Bible translations. So there's just a lot that's going on there. Um, so yeah, just a really quick uh, overview of that. Uh, what are we doing and what do we do? Um, in, a, in a nutshell, between Ruth and I, translation consulting and homeschooling. Uh, Ruth, of course, uh, always takes care of us as we always like to say, make sure that we're fed and clothed and in our right minds. Uh, she was there um, homeschooling our kids. And, and I work mainly with uh, these three teams uh, as a translation consulting. And what that is, is I'm a part of the translation team and a part of their quality assurance um, process is making sure that everything is an accurate and natural and clear translation um, because we're handling God's word. And of course, that's very serious. And we want a clear Jesus from a clear translation. Uh, and that's, that's, that's accurate. And so I'm a part of that process and working with the team. So at the end of the day, you know, hundreds and thousands of changes because of what I've said and worked with the team have you know, changed the text that they're working with. 
um, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know, uh, a lot. Um, three teams we work with, Bogotá, uh, New Testaments and Psalms publications coming up very soon, Lord willing, within the next couple months, maybe, have the manuscript ready to send to typesetting. Uh, and then, then we hand it over to a typesetter, and then after that, it gets published. And then um, you can uh, have our dedication services and all that. They'll happen within the community. And the other teams I work with, related languages, Manja and Luto, uh, they are also within the next couple years, Lord willing, finishing their New Testament projects. Um, and Bogoto is already, we've already been doing a lot of work on Old Testament, um, currently working on Job and First Samuel and Nehemiah. Ezra Nehemiah. So a lot of work there. And so making sure that, so uh, that that work is continuing on. Um, real quick, kind of mentioned this last year, but just a reminder, a new direction, but the same direction. Um, basically, because of the security situation in the Central African Republic, they're not allowing families, Wycliffe is not allowing with new security protocols, uh, families with children. Uh, not if you have children, but if your children are coming there, they're no longer recommending that uh, children can stay there, except under very, 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 very specific, uh, very strict circumstances. Um, so we are not able to work there, but uh, because of working remotely, I work with these teams every day. And so able to continue the exact same work, uh, but at a distance and hopefully soon next year, um, being able to start making uh, a couple trips. Uh, yeah, so regularly just kind of doing things that it works better to do in face-to-face -face instead of remotely. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're doing. We are moving, we're currently in Dallas and in mid-January, we are moving back to North Carolina, back to Henderson County, actually, uh, back to Hooper's Creek uh, to be beside my folks because uh, working remotely with this teams is a long-term option that it doesn't seem the security situation is gonna change. And so continue to work, continue to make trips. And um, so, yeah, moving back, back to Henderson County, which is fun. Uh, so we're going to be there and building, uh, building a home, just kind of on family land right beside my parents is the plan. Uh, new projects on the horizon, kind of mentioned this. Um, yeah, a lot of these, a couple new translation teams among those eight plus that are starting, two of them are going to be using the Bogoto translation because they're close, we're closely related different languages, but more closely related. And they're gonna be using our text as the basis and helping using a computer drafting technology that can help them speed up the drafting process. So this should hopefully speed up a little bit and also help them with a, with a good translation, use the work, the years of labor that we put in the Bogota work. So kind of using it as a basis uh, for, their, for their drafts. Um, so that's a real quick overview of what we're up to. And now kind of transitioning to, uh, the sermon bit. Um, and as I was doing this, I was thinking about y'all's church. I was thinking about um, uh, transitions of life and transitions of a church. And how do we do, how do we navigate those things? Uh, how do we define who we are and what we do? I, I found that as, as I'm getting older, uh, I have to do that a lot. And so the meantime and the end time, recalibrating our purpose as believers. So our text this morning is going to be a lot of verses, actually. I'm not going to read it all ahead of time. I'm going to read it as we go. And as we teach this, my wife was asking me to teach a section on the end times for our kids so that they can understand kind of what's going on. And so this sermon actually flowed from that, and it's these passages. And we're going to look at it sort of at a 25,000 foot level, kind of looking at a very broad, what is Jesus talking about here? 
And the reason I do this is because Jesus, this is an entire kind of teaching section where Jesus gives examples, a couple of different parables and some various teaching to kind of bring us into one main point. So this is an actual very natural section from uh, the gospel of Matthew. Um, I don't know if you guys have been in Matthew or not. I was hearing at some end of gospel, you guys were in talking about Caiaphas. I don't know what it was for Sunday school, but uh, uh, hopefully I'm not <laughs> too recently <laughs> preaching this. Uh, but let's kind of look at that. Um, I'm going to start off uh, kind of with my friend Moni. Moni Chung is a Filipino. He was about, he's my dad's age. And when I was a student, he gave me this advice. He was a sort of older, non-traditional student, as they would say, who um, his wife was this tall German lady. He was this short Filipino guy. And about my dad's age, very dynamic, lovely, evangelistic, kind of the people you want to be like when you grow up. And he was kind of like a mentor to me. And uh, the, the people group that they worked with um, a generation before, literally coming out of Stone Age technology and then seeing this amazing work of God where literally the whole people group basically believed and are now have their own way of training elders and, and teaching and church and, and going out. It's just kind of this incredible story. And so the story was really capturing, uh, captured me and I always listen to any kind of nugget of advice he said. And he told me one time, he goes, you know, Adam, I, mean, not, well, I shouldn't do his Filipino accent. I'm just going to ruin it. But he said, you know, Adam, one day you're going to be in some village and you're going to hear the rooster crowing very early in the morning and someone's gonna be knocking on from the door and you've done this for a while and you look around yourself and you don't wanna get up. <laughs> and he says, you're gonna ask yourself, now what am I doing here again? <laughs> and he said, very interestingly, he said to me, you better have a good answer for yourself. <laughs> and as we get older, I mean, with a lot of different things in life, not just some very rare job of missionaries, which is a fairly rare job in the world, but in your work with your spouse, with your kids, you kind of go, what am I doing here again? <laughs> and we have to have answers for ourselves. And as we look in various transitions in our lives, or maybe where we've just gotten so much in a routine and we got to ask ourselves, now, what am I really doing here? We always have to have, as Moni said, a good answer. And I think this passage uh, so defines who we are as believers. And um, so let's start look just real quick at the background. Uh, there's two questions that Jesus is addressing here. This very famous passage in Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about the return and the, the uh, his return and the end of all things. And um, but the background is in verse 24, and he's responding to questions from his disciples they're looking at the temple these big stones these big bevel stones from the second temple and there's a this is so amazing and in verse three as he said amount of all his disciples came to him private saying well jesus left the temple sorry verse 21 24 verse 1 jesus left the temple and was going away and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple like, like this is impressive but he answered them you see all these do you not truly i say to you there will not be uh, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, this place is going to be destroyed. You're pretty impressed by it. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, well, tell us, when will these things be? Destruction of the temple. And um, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So we have two or three questions about how you, and Jesus 
in the following bits responds to that. And he talks about, and there are certain bits among people, there's disagreement of among people who love Jesus, who love God's word. Um, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the end of the world? Is he talking about the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD when the Romans came under Titus and leveled the place? Or is he talking, and so there's some disagreement at that, but just letting you know, that's the background is the end of the world. And he talks about that. He talks about these, these, these two events. Of when is this going to happen? And at the end, he starts teaching. The next section is, what are we going to do with that information now? <laughs> How do you react to that? And that's, uh, so what do we do with the reality that we live in the last days before Jesus returns? Now, it's important because there's a lot of terminology when people talk about the end times or the last days. Um, in New Testament parlance, uh, way of speaking, the end times is anything post-Jesus. So like Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, uh, we, we read, um, you know, in the past, God spoke to us in many ways, in many different ways, the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So anything Jesus, post-Jesus, is fourth quarter, as it were, if we're going to use, you know, you know, some basketball terminology here. So we have, at the end of the time, this is what we are. So what do we do in these last days, all right, in which we live in? How do we deal with the object of, the idea of the end of the world? And so there's three main lessons that we're going to be reading out. First lesson, he starts off with what not to do. And it's don't be Sherlock Holmes. And we'll talk about that. Let's look at the first bit here in 36. There's three parts to this first lesson. He gives three different examples to not be Sherlock Holmes when it comes to the end or when it's going to be. Let's look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. All right, so he says, the first thing you should know is we don't know, you're not going to know when it's going to happen. It's going to be unexpected. And he gives a first example. It's going to be like Noah. He said this. He says, for as in the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. I mean, like pledging people to be married, having marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. So you know the story of Noah. God's going to destroy the world, build an ark, going to destroy it by water. And he builds this big boat. Everyone's looking around. They're saying, why are you going to do this? All right. <laughs> This is not the text, but this is very likely what would happen. He tells them, God's going to destroy the world because he's wicked. But those who enter the ark will be saved. Nobody believes. And they just plan their lives. And we have all this normal, everyday events. He says, and right when the day, the day of destruction came, everybody were planning, we're going to have a merit. We're going to have a wedding in a couple months, man. We got to get everything together. We got to make sure we got enough wine. We got to make sure, you know, there's enough olive oil and bread. We got to make sure we got to find some way to get some nice clothes made because everything's drop spindled and woven together. We got to do all this stuff. And it's the day that everything is destroyed because it's completely unexpected. You wouldn't, you know, plan a wedding and go, you know, we should, we should, you know, plan that wedding in December. No, the end of the world is going to be in November. So I guess we shouldn't do it then. Like, no one thinks that way. And so what he's saying is this caught everybody unexpected in Noah's time. Even though they're warned, it's unexpected. And they also didn't believe it, for one thing. And so he says this thing is it's unexpected. 
He said, the Marion give it until the day that no end of the ark. 39, and they're unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. So when I return, guys, don't think that you're going to be expecting when it's going to come. You don't know. You're not going to know. This is, this is the thing. He's, he starts off with saying, this is what you don't do. Don't be Sherlock Holmes and going, well, if we look at the news correctly, we're going to figure out when Jesus. No, 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 no. He says, that, that's not even supposed to be your concern, right? Don't even worry about that. He says, and then he says, everyone is, what, swept away. This is kind of comprehensive judgment that's going to come. And then he gives this example with the same thing. Um, the th uh, we continue. He continues with the Noah. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, swept away, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Okay, so some people kind of think this is talking about a rapture or anything like that. It's really not. Uh, it's still in the idea of Noah. We have some people swept away doing normal everyday tasks, grinding at the mill, because you can keep your, 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 your wheat and these, uh, it, it keeps a lot better when you don't grind it. So you just grind what you every day you need, or maybe for a couple of days, what you need. And so this is normal. Like, so Jesus will come back while people are doing normal everyday events. You know, if you knew... So like people will be putting in their laundry, you know, they'll be taking out and folding it while Jesus returns. They're not preparing. But if they knew that, they wouldn't be folding clothes. At least I wouldn't be folding my clothes if I knew Jesus returning and the end of the world is coming in a cataclysmic way, right? But the whole idea is it's completely unexpected. And they don't know it. It's the same thing here. It says, so this, everything will be coming. And for you do not know the day. He says, verse 42, the result is, therefore, stay awake, prepare, watch out, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So in other words, it's completely unexpected. You need to prepare yourself. Okay. So Jesus starts off with Noah comparison, and then he says it in another way. All right, the thief, verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have hit, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. All right? So we have a second message, right? Kind of, he's just kind of building on this. He lets you know it's like Noah. It's like a thief. And then he tells this story of the wicked servant. But it's the same idea. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will so find doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Okay, so here's the story of a man at the time. This would be in the Roman household in the time. He would have kind of a master. and He would have his family, often have slaves. Uh, slaves were about a quarter, 25% of the, of the Roman Empire were slaves. It was very common to have these in households. And so he would put these slaves in charge of things. All right, while he's left, he's making sure that everything is run right. So it says he's starting to add this element of the master is gone. He was there, he's gone, and then he's going to come back. And it's unexpected. So he's adding a little bit of an element here, this new idea of a master returning. All right. It says, verse 7, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, well, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, the slaves, and eats and drinks with drunkards. And the master 
of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. Same idea, right? And at an hour, he does not know. Same thing. And will cut him in pieces, put him with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have this new element of, okay, you don't know, but then there's this master coming and he's gone away. And if you're not doing what you're supposed to, there's going to be a judgment and sort of this recompense of someone who does, does not care or in, and actually just takes what the master gives him and what he's supposed to do and does nothing and does the opposite, does the exact opposite, does what he wants to do. Just gets drunk. He mistreats people because they don't want to do what he says, surprisingly, this, this drunkard who's just mean. And he beats them, mistreats them. And then he throws them out with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This kind of imagery of, okay, he's being tossed in a place where people are crying in deep sadness and gnashing of teeth, which can mean a couple things. In the scripture, gnashing of teeth is kind of like this, you suck in air. And it can mean, in some passage, it can mean that you're experiencing pain. So it's like if you touch, you know, hot stove. I did that the other day. <laughs> and it's, ah, you know, and that's the kind of pain. Or it can be this idea of, it says they gnashed their teeth against Stephen when they stoned him. This, this, this kind of anger and just rage in this place where there's just sorrow and pain and anger and rage. He doesn't really say much about it right here, but this is what he says is going to happen to people who don't prepare. So the first thing he does, there's, there's a lesson of three examples. Uh, one of the things I want to say is why. Why would he give us three examples to tell us what not to do? Uh, you can imagine my dad, my, my dad has always, you know, told me warning things about not to fiddle with stuff on driving down the road. All right? I can imagine my dad telling me a story about someone who got in a wreck because they were fiddling with the radio. I'm like, okay, dad, I, I got you. And he's like, let me tell you another story. And he tells me a story about someone got in a wreck because they were texting. Don't text. He's like, all right, dad. Okay. Then he's like, then he tells me a third story. Whatever you do, don't, don't be talking to people and just, you know, driving and talking and not paying attention. You're going to get in a wreck. I, I, let me tell you a story about that. And at the end of that, what is the overall effect that my dad produced on me? Well, number one, and part of his assumption is, number one, um, this is a real danger. <laughs> you need to avoid it, obviously. But number two, he thinks that I'm going to do it. <laughs> you wouldn't tell me if it didn't. I mean, I mean, it's obviously right. And one of the things that I think we get from this is Jesus tells three things about it's unexpected. It's unexpected. It's unexpected. Let me tell you this story. It's like it's like in the Bible. It's like a thief. It's like this wicked servant, you know. And then you kind of get at the end and go, why would this be? It seems there is this natural tendency for us to go, when is this going to happen? What am I going to do? I need to figure out this puzzle. And have this kind of secret inside knowledge. And if I look at the scriptures well enough, I'm going to figure this out. And Jesus goes, it's not even what you're supposed to be thinking about. Don't do it. There is a tendency for us to do it. There are books out there. I was talking to somebody literally yesterday who was saying, well, I know that it's going to be Iran who's going to be involved in the, in the end. And, and it's going to, you know, talking about that <laughs> and then inserting everybody. Of course, if you read a lot of church history, there's a lot of people done that about lots of things in the politics. And Jesus says, it's not even, don't even worry about that. I mean, if my Ruby came up to me, who's four years old, and says, you know what, Pop, I'm worried about the mortgage. How are you going to pay the mortgage or pay the rent? And I would look at her and go, 
honey, 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 honey. Don't you think one second about that, right? Kex makes me wonder, what am I saying that makes her worrying about that? She shouldn't worry about that. I might tell her three stories not to worry about that. It's not even her concern. And so three examples, save money on time, certain books. You don't have to buy certain books to talk about those things or talk or think about it or worry about it because it's not something you're going to have to worry about. Just as much as my four-year-old shouldn't worry about the rent, we shouldn't worry about the return of Christ. But he does turn us to focus on what we are to do. And that's the next two lessons. Don't be Sherlock Holmes. Don't try to figure it out. And what to do, prepare. So then he tells the next story. Chapter 25. The parable of the 10 virgins, or as I like to say, the 10 bridesmaids. Uh, this is probably more of what it's like because it's a, when, so when you think virgins here, think bridesmaids. Uh, it's a little different kind of wedding. It's a Jewish wedding, but we'll talk about that briefly. So let's look in verse one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins or 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish ones took their lamps, they took no oil with them. All right. So they had little, little oil lamps and that's how light was made, you know, pre-electricity. Uh, usually kind of an olive oil kind of, usually the lower quality. That's used with a simple wick and a little clay thing. Um, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. And as the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the groom. Come out and meet him. And then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, hey, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, oh, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers. Go, go to the shop and buy some. It's midnight, though, you know. And while they're going to buy, the groom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterwards, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch. Be careful. Prepare. You do not know neither the day nor the hour. So the scene here is a Jewish wedding. Now, their weddings are a little different than ours. Uh, one of the things was at the, the ceremony for the, for the wedding uh, was at the bride's family's house. And so after the ceremony, there's a time and the feast is prepared at the groom's house. And so the bride kind of waits. And then there's this kind of procession where the groom comes, the groom comes, you know, there's party and procession. And then they grab the bride and they take her and all the people and they all go back to the groom's house and everyone has a big feast. And these things can last days. You know, this is not, you know, American weddings where eh, you, get, you carve out half a day and it's done. You know, Jewish weddings, you know, take a long, longer period of time. Same thing with African weddings. But here is this common thing that was similar with the other parable where we have people who are prepared for the return of someone and people who are not prepared. And the people who are prepared, who don't, don't, don't get to participate in the feast. And it's results of not preparing are frightening, okay? He says, I do not know you. I'm not letting you in. Now this would be kind of a weird kind of response in that day, but it's this idea of Jesus, he's trying to give you one lesson, prepare for a delay. And the results of not preparing are frightening, okay? So what do we do? We prepare. Okay, we're not supposed to be Sherlock Holmes, all right? But I'm supposed to prepare. Okay, and if you love Jesus and if you're concerned about anything that he's saying, what's the question you're asking yourself? What does it mean to prepare? <laughs> okay, what does that mean? Do I, you know, 
Do I get my underground? Do I stock up on some canned goods? I mean, what do you want me to do, Jesus? And then he tells this story because he knows he would ask that. He knows that people are serious about him to ask that. And so then he tells this story. It's the parable of the talents. He said, for being like a man going on a journey, called his servants and entrusted to him his property. And to one, he gave five talents. Now, that's an unfortunate translation, uh, talents. Uh, it's just a transliteration of the Greek word talentos, which was a weight, a measurement. And so this would be, you know, roughly around, I don't know, uh, 75 pounds, and it's usually a measurement of some precious metal, either silver or gold. This is an incredible amount. So like a talent was like 20 years wage. Wow. Right? So this is a master. He has slaves and he gives one five talents, like hundred years wage. I don't know. What's, what's the average wage in North America times it by a hundred. Yeah, this is an significant amount of money. So just kind of give you an idea. So another he gave two and another he gave one, each according to their ability. But the idea is he's not going here, have a gift. Hope you guys enjoy it. He's saying, no, make something from it, right? Do something with this, make a little bit more money. This is the assumed, you'll see this later, what he's giving this to them. So this is, this is an incredible amount of money. It's not talents. This is not like, you know, I, I, I know how to go on a unicycle. This is not a talent. This is an amount of money and he's an invest it and do something with it. And then he goes away. That sound familiar? Master going away leaving somebody to do something. He gives them something to do. And eventually he returns. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 16, he made, um, he who had received the five talents, the hundred years of salary, went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He also had two talents made and two talents, and he made two talents more. But he had, But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Can you make money from that? Is that that the way that money happens? If like I put 20 bucks in the ground, 40 bucks is when I, you know, when I dig it up, usually not so much. All right. So this is going to be a problem, you see. All right. So he's not making more. He's just, we're going to see why he does this a little bit here. If I can. So verse 19, now after a long time, interesting. After a long time, the master of their servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. And his master said to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, that's an interesting way to say, who's the master? The master speaking, enter into my joy. And the idea here is celebration party, joy. Some translations just say, let's celebrate together. And that kind of gets the idea here. And the entering of the joy is like, not we're just, we're happy, but we're happy because we're partying. (laughs) So there's this entering into this lovely, happy relationship in which we celebrate together. And um, verse 22, and he also had the two talents came forward in the same way saying, master, you live me two talents. You have made two talents more. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter to the joy of your master. Now, here's a big key. So we have those two guys, just different amounts, but the same kinds of good things that were said to them because they did what they're supposed to. All right? They increased the master's assets, basically. He said, um, where are we at? I always lose it here. With my, let me keep my finger on the text here. Verse 24, sorry. 
he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scattered, no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. You kind of imagine him sticking out his hand and going, around with a bag of gold and going, here you go. And he said, but it's interesting what he says here. But his master answered him. And here's a big lesson. You wicked and slothful servant. He calls him wicked. He calls him evil. There's something evil about this guy. That's an interesting response. He's just trying to not lose stuff. But he calls him evil and lazy. You know that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I did not scattered seed. In other words, he's a hard man with his money. He says, and you ought to invest in my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what is my own with interest. In other words, you could have made something. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant, slave, to the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, this idea of darkness. It's almost an exodus imagery when God was in the desert with his people and the pillar of cloud and fire was over the tabernacle and all the, all the tribes were scattered around him. And if you've been in a place like where we live where there's no lights, and there's no lights on the horizon, you can see the Milky Way and all the billions of stars. And then what happens when you get sent away from the presence of God? You are in darkness in a couple ways, away from the light and away from that eternal light. And so that is these images of hell actually is what we are. We're seeing outer darkness away from his presence, weeping, gnashing of teeth for the person who did nothing. Interesting. So how do you prepare? Remember, he's, he's, at, he's answering this question. How do you prepare? You increase your master's assets or be damned. It's quite, a, it's quite a lesson, quite a seriousness that he's addressing a category of people who seem to be kind of connected with God in some way, but in the end, just live their life the way they want to and do nothing. So how do you prepare? You increase your master's assets. <laughs> and then it still begs the question, right? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> increase the mass. I mean, we're not making money for Jesus. Is he, you know, going to clear out our accounts and we're handing over bags of gold at the end? No, but he answers in the most interesting way with the final section that we're going to look at. Good works proving a transformed life. What does it mean to increase the master's assets? And briefly, it means through his grace, we obey all his commandments and further his kingdom until he returns all his commandments. Increasing his assets may look a lot of different ways. It may mean you go out and you share the gospel and work with Bible translation. Um, some of it means you might share the gospel with your friend that you're kind of scared to. Sometimes it means you just might forgive your sister <laughs> and God's grace working through that. And, you know, it might mean a lot of different things, but we obey all of what Jesus has commanded us. And we further his kingdom in the world. 
And that shows who we are on the inside. Because remember, this is this last section. It's still in this line of teaching. What does it mean to, to make it on judgment day by increasing his assets? What does that look like? We have this passage. Incredible passage. Let's read it. And I'll read 31 through the end. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So now it's kind of moving out of parable. This is kind of a teaching of something that will happen, but it's kind of a principle that he's teaching. What is the generally the day of judgment going to look like? And so now he's getting a little bit out of parable and a little bit more into just didactic, just straight up teaching. But it's in principles. We'll see what that is. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And this is a judgment throne, all right? This is the bench, as it were, in our modern judicial system. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats. In other words, there is a binary distinction at the end of the days. Either you're this or you're that. And remember, this is a judgment scene, all right? And he says he'll place his sheep on the right and his goats on the left. Kind of interesting thing. Still in the shepherd, when the often they would, uh, shepherds of the day, uh, even the term in Hebrew for flock assumes goats and sheep. It's something we have to deal with in our translations a lot. But we have this idea, and then at some point they separate them out for various reasons. And Jesus, is, this is kind of what it is here. Uh, he says, the king will say to those on his right, that is, the sheep. In this section, it's the sheep are the, the righteous. Remember, this is a judgment scene. He says, come who you are blessed by my father. Interesting phrase. Those who are the righteous are somehow blessed by God and will be blessed by God. He's, and this explains it. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So in other words, the righteous are people who have been prepared for this very moment before even the world was created. Fascinating right? And then, he, and then he says, how do you know that? How do you know this person was prepared to be a righteous person and inherit the God's kingdom from the foundation of the world? For, verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of these, the least of these, my brothers, Christians, not just anybody in the world, my brothers. He said, if you did it to my brothers, you did it to me. That's interesting. And then we have the opposite here, right? Those on the left, and you will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and we did not minister you? And of course, in a lot of the world, especially right after these things, a lot of Christians were facing prison time and loss of their jobs. They would, they would get kicked out of the guild. Why? Because they no longer 
offered a pinch of incense to Romans or, or maybe to the local god of the craftsman. They got kicked out of their jobs. They lost their livelihood. They lost their freedom. And then you have all these Christians helping it out, right? But these people didn't do that. They didn't do that. They think they're a part, but not really, because what they did. And he says, then he'll answer him saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's an interesting story to answer the question, what does it mean to increase the master's assets? And the idea is, on the judgment day, the interior is proved by the exterior works, just like James says. You know, somebody, Abraham showed his faith by believing, offering up his son, even. And we see the same thing here. What does this look like, though? And um, what is the interior of the righteous? What's motivating them? What's, what's, what's happening to them that's not happening to the unrighteous and proved by what Jesus is saying here? I'm going to give a lesson from a Rubik's Cube. My sons uh, are, 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 I don't know, certain ages. It seems boys seem to get totally fascinated by something. I don't know. For When I was a kid, I threw football all the time. I would just throw it and I'd run. I can't imagine I had the energy now. You know, I threw it, run, and then I would just throw it because I, I was basically like an only child once my brother left. <laughs> and I would throw it and I'd memorize all these stats. I was fascinated with Joe Montana. And I loved love football. My boys are kind of fascinated with Rubik's Cubes and not only solving the Rubik's Cubes, but speed cubing. This is kind of interesting. It's, there's this competition. And there's this kind of this world where you can, the World Cubing Association, it's this international thing. You can go and you solve it really quick. So like my son, Sam, solved it in 10 seconds, a three by three cube. And there's all these different cubes and you can solve it one-handed, you know, all these kinds of different ways of doing it. And we went to a competition in Houston recently. So they could go and be a part of it. It was really fun. It was a really great, um, all the kids there, even though, you know, they're trying to win, they're trying to do their best, very kind of this great camaraderie. When there's no kind of weird competition, you know, everyone enjoying it because usually these kids are by themselves. Right. And I remember the first day we were at, we we're at this hotel and the boys put out their cubes this is before the competition started, which is doing it. And all these little boys just started magnets to, to our boys. And they just started talking. Now, our boys, you know, they know how to talk, but they're not these kind of talk to anybody kind of people. Um, but they started talking to people who, you know, a minute ago, they had no idea who they were, but they immediately became friends. Immediately started talking about cubes and da 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 and solving. Oh, can I see your cube? What kind of cube is that? Well, I'll take it. You know, they're sharing cubes, and it's like they're the best of buddies. Um, and of course, the reason is they have a common interest, right? Uh, there's something that they both really, really love that brings them together and defines who they are. And they're willing to share with this person, like these cubes that they hold so precious, you know, and they, they're sharing and stuff. And it's kind of like that. These people, now imagine this, people believing in Jesus right after that, and in a lot of places in the world too, can really get you in trouble. You can lose your job. People are in prison. And when you associate yourself with people in prison and people who lose their jobs, you may lose your job, you may lose your prison, and you may have already lost that, and you're still sharing your resources, your limited resources. And also, this is a time where it wasn't as abundant resources as they are now, uh, as you're seeing uh, 
abject poverty is decreasing, decreasing, decreasing as people getting more and more wealthy over there. That was not the case in Jesus' time. And what little people have was getting taken away from them because they're believing in Jesus. And these people are willing to risk it all for other Christians. Why? Just like the Rubik's Cube, right? They love Jesus. There's something so inner transformation that's happened by God's spirit in these people's lives that they do not hold their lives dear to themselves. And this is exactly what increasing the master's asset. It's somebody who's changed from the inside, right? It's somebody whose whole desires and orientation in life has changed. If you want to find your life, you lose it. This is, this is what it looks like, right? He was mentioning that at the end. This is what it looks like. People who are giving water, giving food, giving everything to serve, to increase the master's assets. They love God's people so much. They do crazy things to create more of God's people. <laughs> they'll go and share the gospel and they'll serve them too. And at the end, who we are is proved by what we do. Now that can be kind of frightening and scary because we're not, none of us are consistent in that. And that's a lot of what the spirit is working in our lives is becoming more and more consistent in following Jesus. And in exposing the hypocrisy, exposing these things, but there is this general and real orientation in life in which we're changing the inside. And the way that happens, of course, we got to tie it in the Bible translation, is God's word. As Jesus said in John 17, it says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus prayed for all the believers. And of course, this idea of sanctification, it's a big word, big churchy word, but it's this idea of being set aside for God's use. And the way in, way in which we become more and more in every aspect of our life dedicated to God is through hearing about in his word. And you have to understand it. You have to be clear. That's the way it works. It's not magic. We don't hold it and put it on our heads and, you know, say some mumbo jumbo and God's word comes in our head. We, we think about it. We, we live it out. We discuss it. We hear it preached. We, we, we preach it to others. We talk about it. We share it with our kids. We, we share it with our friends. We, and that's how we grow. And that's what we need. We need in our lives to be doing this ourselves. Amen. Be trains in the infant. So the answer is not, all right, I need to start handing out cups of water to Christians or supporting. No, 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 no. These things are coming from a changed interior life. And what Jesus says is, believe in me. It's the gospel. It's his word. It's prayer. And doing God doing all these impossible things of changing somebody. Have you ever tried to change somebody? doesn't work. <laughs> God can. What is impossible with men is possible with God because he can unlock, unlock any human heart he would like. And so this is what we're looking for. The way we craft it, the role. Uh, and so one of the things I was thinking about as I was praying for this last point, and I'm trying to, I've gone over a little and then I'll stop and then I'll be done. But the role of the spirits works on our imaginations. What are you imagining right now? How is God, Jesus, well, there's God's spirit working in your heart right now, because I was praying for this moment right now. How can I increase my master's assets? Maybe it's doing the same thing. Maybe it's being renewed in your, in your passion, your direction. Maybe it's believing in Jesus for the first time, realizing like, I'm just like all those other people going to weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not really interested at all in increasing his master's assets, at least in the way that Jesus defines it. And the answer is not start doing some good stuff, but believe in him. He's the one who can change it from the inside out. And so, we want, I want the spirit, you know, pray that God's spirit work in your imaginations. And you know what? Pursue that. Pursue that. Think about it. Think through it. Is this what God wants me to do? It's in, we obey all his commandments and further his kingdom until he returns. 
be a part of that work. And that should be a desire in your heart. And God wants you to reorient or maybe start on the process or get reaffirmed of this is how we recalibrate. This is what we're supposed to do. In the meantime, in these end times, this is what we do. So let's pray real quick and then we can, we can close. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that it puts us on the right path, um, that it tells us to avoid other kinds of paths. And even when we fall, you encourage us. And even in your challenges and even in your, the way you can say that we're doing something wrong, it's full of grace and that you love us. Lord, I pray for Blue Ridge Bible individuals there and as a church as they go through various transitions and in life that they would recalibrate to say, this is what we're to do. And they can walk in it and be super confident. That's exactly what you want them to do is to further the kingdom by loving your people and sharing the gospel to have more of your people be created, have that new creation uh, through believing you. So we pray this all in Jesus name. Amen.